There's a spirit in our land raising up the kind of man with a burning in his heart to be free. Like the preacher man of old, he can't be bought, he can't be sold. What did they preach? They preached liberty to a people who love their liberty. Liberty to exercise all their God-given rights granted them at the time of their birth. The right to speak their arms and pray, worship God on land and say, from bad law we will keep our people free. They call the king into accounting for his disregard of law Told their people not to yield before his threats For God established rulers to protect the rights of man And ordained government to fit into his plan To maintain his people's liberty time of their birth, the right to speak their arms and pray, worship God on land and say, from bad law, we will keep our people free, through the jewelry, we'll guard our liberty. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Voice of Liberty. This is Rick Tyler, thanking you for tuning in today to this broadcast and thanking you for your continued desire to know the truth, to be a proponent of the truth in a world that increasingly is at war with the truth and determined to try to thwart truth at every conceivable level of our existence today. We live in a, an hour of history, clearly, where technology has enabled the would-be tyrants to be able to combat and to present opposition to truth in a way that their predecessors were not readily in possession of. And of course, this is much to their advantage, and this is much to our detriment. We have to figure out ways to, to thwart them in their efforts to stifle the going forth of truth. We have to figure out ways, of course, to wield the broadsword of truth in a manner and in a fashion that is not only effective, but of course is uh, designed to utilize the power of that truth. For after all, truth is the most powerful force in the universe. And one of our great problems as a people is that we have we have failed to utilize that which we have been given. We have failed, in fact, miserably at times, and I would submit to you even at the present time, there is great failure among the ranks of our people uh, relative to what we should be doing as opposed to our 
shortcomings, our deficiencies. Now, I don't want to be overly negative. Obviously, we have a great deal to be positive about as well, starting with the fact that we are the recipients of undeserved and unmerited favor on, on the part of our, extended to us on the part of our God. He has given to us that which we truly do not deserve when you get right down to it. Now, we have, after all, in our sin nature, we have grieved him. We have grieved the Spirit of God by our uh, fleshly proclivities and by the fact that we, so often, we are quick to elevate the things of this world over the things of the Spirit. We make many classic, basic mistakes in the outworking of our lives, things that we, we should know better. And of course, the Apostle Paul alluded to this when he lamented the fact that the things that he would do, often he didn't, and vice versa. The things that he knew that he shouldn't do, often he would. So even the Apostle Paul, uh, having attained unto that status, that title, if you will, uh, he said, O wretched man that I am. So, of course, we want to always have that equilibrium, that balance of understanding that there is no way that we can walk in perfection. Only our Messiah was able to lead a perfect, sinless life, devoid of, of any sin. He who knew no sin, of course, we know scripturally we are told, actually took upon himself the sins of his people that he might die a sacrificial death for us and absolve us of the guilt that would otherwise accrue unto us and, of course, would necessitate our eternal damnation. Because of that sacrifice that he made for us, we are able to become the heirs of eternal life despite our faults, despite, despite our frailties, despite the fact that we are unclean and impure in our sin nature. Remember the psalmist said, in sin did my mother conceive me. And we know, of course, that when a, a newborn baby uh, comes into this world, they do not have to be instructed in the art of sinning. They don't have to be taught how to sin. It comes natural because of the, the genetic inheritance of that sin nature. Now, having said all of that, I want to shift gears now and talk about what we can do despite the albatross that we have around our neck, that being our sin nature and our imperfection. There is much that we can do. There is, in fact, a great deal that, that we are not availing ourselves of in terms of the ability to accomplish great things simply because we are committing missteps in a very basic and foundational sense. Often people get bogged down in extraneous considerations and they miss the core message of our faith and of our legacy, our heritage, and our destiny. Very often, of course, it's easy to fall into that trap that is stated as not being able to see the forest for the trees, and we are all prone to this. So it behooves us to, to pray that our God would give us clarity of vision and sight, that he would give us the ability 
to discern, to ascertain, to understand that we would not be like the the example of the genius who doesn't have the common sense to come in out of the rain because there are people who are that way as well. They have great stupendous intellect but at the same time are grossly lacking in common sense. We, of course, need to be endowed with common sense. We need to exercise and practice logic and common sense, but at the same time make full usage of the vast reservoir of knowledge that has been bequeathed and imparted to us. Now, I want to return to a passage of Scripture that we we looked at in an earlier message or broadcast, and it's in the book of Joshua, the first chapter, and it begins with verse 1, chapter 1, saying, Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou, and all this people under the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. Now, of course, God had promised, or as it states here, he had said unto Moses, he had promised the, the land that the people were getting ready to enter into. He had promised it to them. And they had the, the very profound and significant experience, negative, obviously, in a great way, of having to delay for a rather extended period of time prior to crossing the Jordan and going into the land of promise. Moses, of course, was at the the helm, if you will, he was in leadership over the people uh, during the, obviously, the time of the exodus out of Egypt, but also during this period of time in the wilderness. And this was not some vast, immeasurable territory that they sojourned in for 40 years. It was rather limited, rather small, comparatively speaking, but there were problems, obviously, that were extant among the people that God had pronounced certain judgments upon, one of them being that the generation which had been responsible for the egregious conduct immediately in the aftermath of the exodus, that they would die in the wilderness, that they would not taste of the, the victory of crossing the Jordan and going into the land of promise. And of course, when God meets out a judgment or a punishment, it's very serious business. The consequences are, at times, very debilitating, very injurious in a temporal sense. But the promise was nevertheless inviolate. It was there. It was destined to be fulfilled. And of course, it's important to remember that in certain respects, many of our people today similarly have committed atrocious acts 
and engaged in all manner of objectionable conduct to the extent that God has pronounced or he has passed a certain judgment upon his people, just as he has throughout history, that precludes them from receiving and exercising all of the blessings that would otherwise be at their disposal. This is part of the justice of Almighty God. This is part of the process whereby he deals with his people, exercising chastisement and punishment when it is deserved. Of course, often again, we are spared the full extent of the punishment that we deserve. Otherwise, we would all be obliterated out of existence, quite frankly. But again, just as was the case here in the these first three verses of the first chapter of Joshua, today also we have been on the receiving end of, of certain chastisements and even delays in things coming to fruition, which might otherwise be a blessing to us. The solace and consolation that we can derive from that is knowing that there is the potential, just as was the case at this time that we're reading about, there's the potential today that our descendants, our progeny, our posterity, our offspring, that they can receive blessings that maybe we are not going to be able to fully lay hold of. But nevertheless, we must lay our lives down sacrificially to prepare the way for the potential survival of our posterity into the future. We must have that philosophical perspective if we are able to move forward in the proper manner, in the proper fashion that would be fitting for the people of God, the covenant people of God. And after all, that's what we are. We are a covenant people. We may forget our end of the bargain very often with God, but he never forgets his, and he is faithful and true. Now, it's interesting that Joshua is referred to Moses' minister. And we know that Joshua, of course, wore the hat primarily in the time that ensued after going into the land of promise. He wore the hat of military general or leader. Joshua, of course, was, was walking the point and he was in the lead as Israel time after time encountered and dealt with hostile opponents in the promised land who were not at all inclined to recognize and acknowledge that the Israelites were the true chosen people of God and that they had been granted by God the mandate and the ability to take possession of this promised land. These other peoples who were the inhabitants of the land, of course, they viewed it as theirs. They felt that they had the right to defend it by force, and they were not in any way averse to employing lethal force to defend what they believed was theirs. But, of course, we know that God had willed and he had, he had formulated in his plan that his people would be able to become the conquerors, that they would be able to engage in a successful conquest of this promised land. And, of course, over the the pages that we read through in the book of Joshua, we read about the exploits. We read about the victories that God's Israel people were able to achieve and experience as they walked in faith to fulfill his will and his destiny for them, for their lives, for their children, for the future. We know that God had a plan that spanned the entirety of the ages, 
that would involve this peculiar people, this royal priesthood, these people with whom he had struck an everlasting covenant. And so today, of course, we are the literal bloodline physiological manifestation of those Israelite people of the book of Joshua and of the whole entire uh, word of God. And we have the same mandate. We have the same covenants, the same inheritance as did our forefathers. And we must have the courage. We must have the temerity. We must have the fortitude to rise to the occasion and do that which we are called to do, which very often will make us unpopular with. It will put us at odds with those who are unwittingly the opponents of the plan of God. You see, there's nothing new under the sun. It has always been commonplace for those who are vessels of wrath, who are the the wastrels, who are the destroyers, who are the counterfeiters even. It has always been the case that they feel not only empowered and emboldened, but they feel completely legitimized in the conduct that they engage in individually and collectively that constitutes a great impediment to the fulfillment of the will and the purpose of God in the earth. This is part of the script. This is part of the plan that has been ordained by Almighty God since the very beginning of time. And these unwitting opponents to the outworking of God's will, they feel thoroughly and totally justified in all manner of evil, the evil that they perpetrate and that they routinely carry on to make war against the people of God and to seek to bring about the destruction of God's people. Now, there are some among their ranks who are consciously and knowingly the servants of of Satan. They, however, are the minority among the ranks of humanity. They are an elitist faction who are pursuing the agenda of Satan. Many of them, again, are thoroughly conscious of that fact, and they have been handsomely remunerated and rewarded in this lifetime by the power that they serve, which, of course, Almighty God has given certain latitude to do what what he does and, of course, what by extension, what they do. But again, a large percentage of the people that stand in opposition to us as we seek to outwork the will of God, they don't know what they're doing. They don't understand the breadth and the the depth and the extent uh, to which they are involved in conduct that is antithetical to the will and purpose of God. In fact, very often they think they are serving God. They, of course, very often are adherents to and practitioners of a lukewarm brand of churchianity-type religiosity, false religion, but they believe that that their uh, religious doctrines and practices are virtual state-of-the-art. They think, they fancy that they are on the cutting edge of truth when in fact and in reality they are grossly deficient. So when we're dealing with this type of delusion and this type of pompous and arrogant pride that is so typical amongst the people of the world today, uh, we have to take that into consideration as well. 
in terms of how we prosecute our endeavor to take dominion of the promised land that awaits us and to walk in fulfillment of the statutes, the judgments, and the plans that have been orchestrated and implemented by our God, our great and mighty God, who is sovereign and supreme over the entire universe. Now, of course, we know there's that cliche-ish type a statement that people often make when they are recognizing the severity of the circumstances that are engulfing and inundating them when they will say, well, I've read the end of the book and we win. And of course, they say that as a means of deriving a sense of satisfaction or consolation relative to the setbacks and the sufferings that they might be experiencing at the present time. And of course, it is true. We do win. But our victory does not of necessity have to simply be relegated to the very end of the book, to the final chapter, if you will. For you see, at any given moment in time, the people of God possess the ability to walk in victory over the forces of evil. We have the inherent ability at our fingertips and actually very, very much within our grasp to prevail over wicked personages, institutions, forces, etc. If we will simply order our steps and do things according to the plan and the protocol and the manifesto that our God has given to us. Again, this isn't some deep, secret, esoteric knowledge that that only a select few are able to attain unto, the truth is hiding in the open. It is readily available, and it is at the disposal of anyone who chooses to lay hold of it and to derive benefits therefrom. I'm speaking, of course, of truth that is imparted to us in the Word of God itself, timeless, eternal, all-powerful. I would like to turn to another passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 54. This is actually the very last verse of the 54th chapter of the writings of the prophet Isaiah. Verse 17, chapter 54, Isaiah says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Now again, let's look at the words of this verse, this single powerhouse verse of Scripture. And please understand what this verse alone is is telling us and giving us the ability to do. It says again, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. What does that mean? That means that no matter what advanced weaponry, tactic, technique, whatever, no matter what is marshaled against us, no weapon shall prosper. None of these types of weapons, tactics, techniques will prosper. 
And then it says, And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. And of course, the tongue, as we know in the book of James, we read about how powerful the tongue is, uh, what destruction and havoc it can wreak. And yet, despite the power of the tongue and the power of lies and false witness, that nevertheless, according to the authority of this verse of Scripture, that no tongue that shall rise against us in judgment, and of course that would be false judgment, obviously, that no tongue will succeed in the sense that we will be able to condemn it. And of course, it, the tongue, uh, rising up against us in condemnation and in judgment, it being part of the weapon that is being formed against us, it will not prosper. We have the power to condemn it. This is part of the methodology whereby God enables us to keep the weapons of the forces of evil from prospering when they are marshaled against us. In other words, we must be proactive. We must be willing to step up and step out and condemn we must condemn the tongues that rise up against us in judgment. In other words, it's not sufficient just to simply ignore what they are doing or saying. We are duty-bound and obligated to actually condemn what it is that they are saying, lying about, the false witness that they are bearing against us. Now, of course, we go on to read that this is actually the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Now, the people that we are coming up against, they think, many of them, that they are the servants of the Lord. But they're not. How do we know they're not? Well, we know that they reject the truth. We know them by their fruit. If someone loves the truth, that speaks volumes about them, about the God that they serve. If someone conversely is resistant to truth, is willfully ignorant, and in fact is even an enemy of the truth, and doing it all in the name of the Lord, no less, if someone fits that description, if they are among that categorization, we know that they are not the servants of the Lord, no matter how fervently and passionately they believe that they are. They simply are not because that is the ultimate litmus test. What does someone do with the truth? Do they receive it, accept it, believe it, walk in it, or do they make war against it? Do they resist it? Now, as servants of the Lord, it is part of our heritage to condemn every tongue that rises up against us as part and parcel of being weaponry that is being brought against us by the forces of evil. This is all, of course, interlocked and interwoven, the principles that are laid out in this verse. And, of course, it goes on to say, and their righteousness is of me. That, of course, speaking of the servants of the Lord. Their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. 
servants of the Lord, of course, genuine, true servants of the Lord, are going to be ever mindful of the fact that we have been the recipients of instructions, of requirements set forth by the sovereign hand of our God through his servants that have been meted out for us, given to us that we might be pleasing in his sight, that we might avoid bringing damnation and judgment upon ourselves. Yes, the word of God says that there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, we are told. And as the saying goes, but for the grace of God, there go I. That's why the scripture also tells us, let any man who stands taketh heed lest he fall. We are all susceptible to the snares, to the the trappings, to the pitfalls of our sin nature. And for this reason, of course, we must fulfill the words of the psalmist when he said, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Do you like the idea of being able to condemn every tongue that rises up against us in judgment? If you don't like the idea of being able to condemn every tongue that rises up against us in judgment, there's something wrong with you. Do you like the idea of, of being the very people that are being talked about in Isaiah 54, verse 17, when it says that no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper? If you don't like that idea, there's something wrong with you. Because we are not to flex our muscle, if you will, and exert ourselves in this world for the sake of of self-gratification or self-adulation or self-promotion, but instead we are to do it with the heart of a servant and, of course, counting it joy if we have to suffer along the way, counting it joy to be able to be found in the service of the eternal almighty God who is our creator, our sustainer, both the author and the finisher of our faith. Well, I lay all of this out as foundation for a subject that we need to talk about. We need to talk about it with regularity, with an increasing degree of urgency, because in case you haven't noticed, we are being painted into a corner. The true Israel people of God in the earth today, we are in the crosshairs. We are the target of the enemies of Jesus Christ, those who hate our Savior. We are the target of those vile enemies of our great and mighty God. 
And these enemies have not been wasting time. They have not been dilly-dallying around. They haven't been squandering the opportunities that they have illicitly and unjustly laid hold of. Through their lies, through their usurpations, through their outright acts of vicious criminality over the decades and generations, they have been able to devise a system, a corrupt system that is replete with evil, with destructive force. They have designed and devised and erected this system that they might fulfill the vision, the agenda, and the goals of the God that they serve, the false God. Now, of course, it's pathetic when you think about the fact that that Satan is nothing but an imposter. He's a counterfeit. He's obviously delusional. He's a would-be usurper of the throne of God. But he is skillful enough to have sold to his legions of followers the idea that he is destined to emerge victorious in this conflict of the ages. Now, of course, this is preposterous and absurd. He, of course, is part of the creation. He does not have the ability to speak matter into existence. He does not have anything even remotely approaching the powers and the attributes of our mighty God. But compared to human limitations, he is very powerful. He is very adept at wreaking havoc and engendering chaos and wickedness and destruction in the earth. And so, again, those who constitute his shock troops, his foot soldiers, they are brimming with confidence and they are very quick to skillfully utilize all of the advantages that they possess in the erection of and the construction of a system that is totally stacked against the people of God. It is designed to strip us of our humanity, our dignity, our liberty, of everything that could be counted as worthy and good and righteous in this life. They have, very often, they have a zeal and a passion that undergirds their activism. Their delusional state that leads them to believe that they are playing the winning hand, it emboldens them. It causes them to have a haughty, condescending, arrogant type attitude. Now, we know that in the final analysis, in the end, they're going to be ground into fine powder. They're going to be destroyed utterly and totally by the sovereign hand of God. There will be great victory, ultimately, over all of these vile and wicked forces and personages and entities that we are up against. But in the meantime, they are in a season of 
certain levels of achievement and victory that can very, very uh, powerfully cause within us a sense of despair bordering on hopelessness. And of course, here is where it is urgently necessary that we lay hold of the promises that are contained within Holy Writ, within the Word of God, and that we make application of them and that we show that the God that we serve, that we truly have the faith of a child. We have childlike, pure, innocent faith in His utter and complete and total and thorough ability to give us the victory in a timely fashion. But in the meantime, we are being painted into that proverbial corner. And it is incumbent upon us to strategize and to conceptualize how it is that we might take action to better our position or even to position ourselves in the, for in the future uh, the opportunity to be able to lay hold of more tangible and substantive victories in the conflicts that rage between us and the servants of the devil. Just as in Joshua, the verses that we read in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, just as it was necessary for Joshua to lead the people across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land, we must also be willing, if we are called to leadership, we must be willing to be like Joshua ourselves, and otherwise we must be willing to be among the company of people that follow God-ordained leadership into what is analogous to the promised land today for us. Now, remember, there was a time when our ancestors, they came to the new world. They came to the shores of what would become America, and they entered into a promised land. They crossed oceans to do it, and they entered into a promised land, and there were people who were there, some of whom were very resistant to and hostile toward the new presence of these European men, these Caucasian men who were coming in their vessels and coming to this new land. Again, there were people that were resistant to this influx and of course, those people, some of them, did like the people in the promised land in the time of Joshua in terms of rising up in forceful opposition. But it was the will, it was the plan, it was the destiny ordained by the God of our fathers that, that our ancestors would come to this land that became known as America and, of course, other parts of the earth that our people were led to that they would come there, that they would take dominion, that they would build upon that soil, upon that land, a civilization that would be predicated and founded upon biblical truth and biblical principles and biblical law. And that is the very thing that our forefathers did on this North American continent, on the landmass between the Atlantic and the Pacific, that today is known as America. And of course, there were stunning successes and accomplishments and achievements 
there was obviously an endowment that was being exercised on the part of our ancestors. Great infrastructure was built where there was once dense wilderness. Our people employing and utilizing the the methodology that was imparted to them by their own ancestors, which of course also was founded and predicated upon the word of God, the law of God, the truth of God, they were able to, in record-breaking time, astonishingly and in breathtaking fashion, they were able to subdue a continent and to raise up a civilization operating under the rule of God's law to a large degree, which of course then became the cornucopia, the fountainhead of vast blessings and wealth and prosperity, the breadbasket of the world we became known as. Now, of course, it doesn't take long to undermine, to subvert, and to bring destruction to something that has been arduously brought into existence by obedience to and by conformity to the will and the standards of God. And of course, we saw within the last half of a century or even a century, we saw the dissolution of much of what had been built and developed by godly forebears of ours. We saw the calculated undermining and subversion. And of course, this of necessity transpires when we open the door and we allow the forces of evil to come in. When we defy the law of our God and we begin to become unequally yoked, we begin to compromise. And of course, there is always an enemy faction. There's always an enemy force, a satanic power that is waiting and ready to rush in and fill the vacuum whenever we abdicate and we fail to follow after the precepts and the stipulations that have been laid out and set for us by the God of Israel, by the God of Scripture. So in the last few generations especially, we have witnessed an accelerated level of deterioration that has brought us to the virtual breaking point. We are being painted into a corner like never before. The enemies of truth and righteousness They are becoming bold in a way that they have never been before as well. They can taste victory. They have the smell of blood. The scent is very real to them. They are ready to go for the juggler. They are ready to attempt to eradicate us from the face of the earth because they hate us. They hated our Savior without a cause, And they hate us as well because whether they acknowledge it or not, it might only be subconscious. They know who we are. And they are envious and jealous and enraged beyond measure and comprehension toward us. They fancy that if they can put us in our place, if they can eradicate and destroy us, that they will at last 
be able to have their nirvana, their heaven on earth that they, in a delusional sense, chase after. Now, of course, we know what their destiny is. We know what the result is when they are allowed to be in control of anything. Our people, of course, historically, we are builders. We build civilization. We establish rule of law. We establish order in a sinful, imperfect world. Those who are not among our stock, among our people, they, unfortunately, all too often, fulfill the role of destroyers. They tear down, they destroy, they lay waste to that which previously was orderly, was structured and designed to bring glory and honor to the God of Scripture. Of course, our tendency is to flee from the menacing powers that surround us and envelop us. Our tendency is to want to seek out a new plateau upon which we might once again build and thrive. But when we continue to do that thing, that tactic of avoidance, we ultimately run out of places to turn to. And that's where we are right now. And that is why we are being painted into the corner, so to speak. So what can we do in a time such as this where we are outnumbered, outfinanced, outgunned? We, of course, have experienced the curse of the stranger which is among us rising up above us. We have become the head. He has become the tail. These are all hallmarks of the judgment, the chastisement of God upon a wayward, sinful, rebellious people. And we find ourselves in this very highly precarious state of affairs. What can we do in light of this grim reality? Well, we know that we serve a God of infinite proportions. We know that nothing is beyond his ability, that all power in heaven and earth has been given unto him. And we know that he said in Matthew 16, 18, he said, speaking of himself, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So at the epicenter of, of what we do in response to the peril that we face right now, at the epicenter of our response has to be a fixation and a prioritization upon the rebuilding of the house of God. That would be, of course, in present day, New Covenant terminology, the ecclesia, the called out. But again, serving the same purpose as what God ordained and mandated for his people prior to the advent of the Messiah. Of course, he had a temple. He had a tabernacle. He had a place that was identified with his presence. And of course, today, we are told by the Apostle Paul when he says, Know ye not? 
He says your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. The God of Scripture actually dwells within his people today, but at the same time, he does want us to to have a place, a focal point, where we congregate, where we assemble together. It doesn't have to be a building or a structure, although there's nothing wrong with it being that. Obviously, it is most conducive to to organizing and building structured resistance to evil, to have that which enables us to come out of the elements and come together and worship our God corporately together in a manner that shields and shelters us from the elements and and gives us a modicum of comfort within which to operate. But again, the reestablishment and reformation of and rebuilding of the the fellowship, the called out, the ecclesia, the family of God, the church of Jesus Christ. This must be at the epicenter of our agenda as we seek to deal with this phenomenon whereby we have been painted into a corner and we are now facing imminent, vicious, violent destruction that is poised, ready to come against us. Now, quite obviously, there are places that are very unfavorable to be. Anybody who would desire right now to be in Los Angeles or New York City or Chicago or Miami, Florida, uh, where I actually was born and raised, or any big city, anybody who wants to be in a location such as that, if they don't have a very, very noteworthy undeniable reason to be there that dovetails with the clear-cut will of God that is undergirded by the precepts of his word. They have picked the wrong place to be. Now is the time in an analogous sense to what we read about in Luke 21 and Matthew 24. Now is the time to flee from Jerusalem. Now is the time to vacate those dens of iniquity, those bastions of structured and organized evil that the big cities of our civilization today have become. There was a time when these cities, of course, were not the way they are today. There was a time when when they, in fact, might have even been breeding grounds for some great and mighty works to transpire from. But that time is long gone. The heavy population centers of our world today and of our country specifically have become no man's land. God only knows what will happen to them in the way of judgment. It might be all-consuming. Washington, D.C. is not a place to be right now. This capital of our country, which has been completely given over to satanic power, even in terms of the architecture of buildings and the laying out of of streets and the city itself, this capital of America is clearly in the grip of the satanic power. And of course, there needs to be a major house cleaning in our country, in our civilization. But the way that God works typically is through that which, comparatively speaking, is small and insignificant. 
as we've mentioned before, the, the widow's mite, the fishes and loaves that were vastly multiplied to feed the multitude. David, the most unlikely son of Jesse, being ordained to become king of Israel. That's the way that our God works. He doesn't work through the high and mighty. He doesn't work through those who have seemingly infinite credentials that they boast of. But instead, he works through the unlikely vessel and vehicle. Remember, it was fishermen that that our Savior went to and said, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And it says, and straightway they left their nets and followed him. Well, obviously the opposite, the polar opposite of the big population centers, the big cities would be rural territories or areas of our country. And there still are, by the grace of God, there still are rural areas that have not been overrun. Although it is the plan, it is the calculated agenda to overrun these rural areas with the same type of scourge, the same type of horrific presence of evil that is already the norm, the status quo in the big population centers. There must be calculated resistance to the encroachment of these forces in any rural areas that God's people might endeavor to take a stand within. And I believe that we need to be about the business of singling out and selectively targeting and pinpointing certain areas that we as the people of God might begin to do as our Israelite ancestors did when they went into the promised land, that we might begin to take dominion, that we might be willing to deal with whatever adversarial forces or parties might be already present there that we might subsequently raise upon our flagpole the incense of our Savior Jesus Christ and take dominion in his mighty and holy name. Now, there are areas of the country that are uh, more conducive than most others to this type of possible hypothetical uh, agenda being outworked. And, of course, many people have a proclivity toward a certain area uh, due to the fact that maybe their origins are closer to that area. But we must employ objectivity in our quest for the right place or places from which we seek forth to bring the power, where we seek to bring forth the power and, of course, the blessings and the will of our God in this day and time. Again, we have to deal with the fact that we are painted into a corner and we are facing a vicious and venomous force that wants to literally eradicate us from the face of the earth. Now, of course, the Pacific Northwest has long been a favorite uh, among people, uh, many of whom are somewhat of our ilk or very much like unto what we profess to be. Uh, There, of course, are areas in the Missouri-Arkansas border-type territory, Moark it's called, that have become enclaves for people that we would consider to be, in general, like-minded. And of course, there is also the, the southeast, the area, the territory that is 
nestled into the foot of the the Rocky Mountain Range, the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, again, the Appalachian, uh, the Rockies, of course, being out west, the Appalachian Mountains in the east, the southeast. Of course, the problem with out west uh, is twofold. First of all, the the western states, they came into being under the tutelage of and under the oppressive thumb of a already powerful federal government. And so you will find in the western states less of a mentality of liberty than you will find in the southeast, in the original 13 colonies. Now, of course, in the original 13 colonies, there are bastions of socialistic Marxist liberalism that are very predominant, unfortunately, in New England. And these heavy population centers, sadly, have become no man's land themselves. But again, in the Appalachian Mountains, in the area where North Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia come together, for instance, there is a territory that is conducive to the building and establishment of that which is needed by our people in the days ahead as we seek to achieve circumstances that would be conducive to survival. As we move forward in our broadcast and in our discourses, I want to openly and up front acknowledge that, that I believe that this area that I'm speaking of is the most favorable. It's not a matter of everybody needing to come to one area, but rather a matter that we can find an area that some of us at least can come to to seek the outworking of the will of God. Contact us if you would like by emailing us at voiceofliberty1776 at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. And until our next broadcast, we ask that God's blessing and protection would be upon you. We need such preacher men today to show our people the way to redeem their lost liberty. The fires of hell cannot prevail against one man who'll take a stand from the pulpit, exposed tyranny, and teach his people liberty. Liberty to exercise all their